Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 298 Quantified Selflessness. In this episode, taken from the new BGTV show Contemplative Technology, we're joined by the quantified man, Chris Dancy, to explore the relationship between the quantified self movement and the deepening experience of selflessness described on the Buddhist path. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. All right. Hello, everyone. Geeks, Buddhist freaks, punks, all of you subcultural weirdos. <laughs> this is Wizards, uh, too. Wizards. Don't, don't forget them. Monks and quantified self-junkies. Uh, we're here today for another episode of Contemplative Technology, and our special guest, along with my co-host Mike Redmer, who's uh, here and rocking it, is Chris Dancy, uh, sometimes known as the Quantified Man, also uh, the Data Exhaust Cartographer. You have to you have to break that one down for us because <laughs> I couldn't even say it. <laughs> say it five times fast, Vince. <laughs> Five times fast. Yeah, welcome, Chris. Good to hang with you and, and chat about some of this stuff. It's so exciting to be here. I watched the first episode and I was yelling at you both. Yeah, yeah. No, you had Wait, some great I couldn't comments. hear you. Yeah, I know. That's the nice <laughs> thing about this type of technology. <laughs> so we sort of titled this conversation uh, Quantified Selflessness. Mm. And it's sort of a play on the coming together of the quantified self movement with mm. the sort of self uh, looking into selflessness or egolessness or, or whatever movement that you find um, more in the Buddhist uh, tradition. So, mm. you know, Mike and I were thinking it'd be really fun just to kind of kick it off to hear a little bit about some of the ways that you're practicing this kind of quantified selflessness. Cause uh, of everyone that I've met uh, and even people that I've heard about, you're, you're probably doing more than anyone in terms of melding these two areas so I thought it'd be cool if you could kind of like run us through what a day in the life of Chris Dancy is like. Maybe not, maybe, you know, I don't, you can keep it as tight or as broad as you want. And then I think I it's also, more a question of PG or, or R. Well, you, you I mean, how, much quantification, how much quantification do you want to be aware of? <laughs> maybe, let's keep it, let's keep it focused on the, the what's related to your, uh, to your kind of contemplative life, yeah. which might be rated R. But um, also, I wanted to ask if you could say a little bit about uh, the fact that you were at the Buddhist Geeks Conference lately, and that this you said to me, this is my first completely quantified conference, mm. um, by which I sort of understood that to mean that you were tracking some things at the conference. Maybe, maybe we could start there. I, I'm oh, curious what you were so tracking. Many questions. Yeah, sorry. The Buddhist Conference, and then the Buddhist Geeks Conference, and then uh, how did I get started with quantified selflessness? Yeah. Um, so... The Buddhist Geeks Conference, let's look at that out of the way. It was amazing. And thank you for uh, you and the team for putting it on. Um, I've been to so many conferences over the past three years. Everything from Cyborg Camp to South by Southwest to Defrag to Glucon to uh, a transhumanist conference. I mean, I've seen a lot. And Buddhist Geeks was one of the few conferences where everyone I met could have been on stage. Uh, I'd never experienced that, uh, where everyone was so thoughtful and, 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 and learned in 
and just the things that were important to me. Uh, as far as the conference itself, I did my first quantified keynote. <laughs> so in, in London in June, I wore sensors, uh, a heart rate sensor, my wrist sensor, and then my phone is a sensor. And then I, I travel with sensors because I need environmental sensors, things that I don't wear. Um, but it was the first time I'd used in a keynote things to capture data and then display them back to the world. And something really remarkable and profound happened. At the end of the keynote, a lady said to me, that at one point I was slightly emotional about a topic that was important to me and that she was so moved by seeing my heart rate and skin temperature change. Wow. And I realized at that moment that we'd, we'd entered into an age where people saw data, uh, much like Tank did in the Matrix, long before they actually observed humans, and which goes back to quantified selflessness or being uh, aware. Uh, and, in this juxtaposition or transition between people seeing each other and seeing data and becoming pattern recognition machines was very, very, very profound. Um, so at the conference, I really wanted to, instead of doing session evaluations or whatever those other things were, I wanted to measure my physical reaction to each of the sessions so I could see who really provoked me mm. Um, mm. into thinking. Uh, so yeah, I, I, at the conference, I took each session and started and stopped a bunch of sensors uh, to see what type of response I got. So yeah, that was what I mean by first quantified conference. So answer your question. And Chris, I, I'm curious, did, is that uh, posted anywhere publicly? Or <laughs> is, that, is that data um, just kind of for yourself to reflect so, on? So um, the NSA has a copy. And yeah, then, uh, <laughs> they do. <laughs> um, uh, no. Uh, I, you know, I have no problem sharing it with 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 Vince and the team. Um, you know, it's it's. I was, you know, I felt honored to be at the conference. I'd be an honor to share the, share the data. You know, one of the things I noticed just in the last two years is people won't believe anything you say to them, but if you send them a link, they instantly will use it as a weapon. And being able to link to data like that is very profound for some people. I'm not sure why, but we've entered not only a link economy but a link knowledge economy. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And then how, how did you get into this? I mean, I know you're, oh, I know you've been an IT professor. It's so embarrassing. So <laughs> um, it became really important to me as I turned 40, I'm 44 this year, to uh, literally, I was sharing so much stuff online to, to have it, have a record of it. You know, I didn't know Facebook was going to be around. Uh, so, you know, four years ago, I said, how can I save this stuff? And I started looking into systems like Yahoo Pipes just to collect and this is literally how it started. And then no one's ever asked me how I started. So it's, thank you for finally letting me answer the question I always wanted to. I don't want to. It's embarrassing. But um, I, I didn't want to lose anything I did online as far as Facebook was concerned. So I started using things like Yahoo Pipes. So if I wrote a blog or I put something on Facebook, it just saved it. Just put it into Evernote. It's very simple. Um, and then one day I was in Evernote and I was searching and I found a Facebook post. And I thought, this is profound. I, just six months later, I found something I did on Facebook that it literally was a wormhole back to that moment in time. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all the busyness of my life collapsed. And I was at one with a piece of data I left on a trail some point back. Then I thought to myself, wow, I could do this with a lot of things. So I started experimenting uh, with a couple different services beyond Yahoo Pipes. Yahoo Pipes was the first, uh, but Ift and IFTTT and Zapier. And then what I slowly did over the past four years is every week I try to bring on three systems. So wow. we, use, 
we use a lot of systems in our lives and I divide them into applications, devices, sensors, and services, right? So Dropbox is a service uh, that has an API. So anything I use, I try to map to. Um, so I got started literally just because I wanted to not lose my Facebook history. Four years later, I have anywhere between three and 400 systems simultaneously collecting data on me uh, at any given moment. So I can literally glance at my calendar or glance at Evernote and see lots of entries. And some of them are me, some of them are the environment, but the most valuable ones for me today, four years later, are the reflection that comes that are being collected from other people interacting with the digital version of myself. So while I have a lot of things being measured when I use things or being here with you, or, or, or my voice using the ambient noise sensor or the lights or the temperature, the most amazing thing is when I actually toggle off and say, show me what people I know or other systems did with that data. So it's a very reflective point of view from a data only world. Does that make sense? Can you explain that a little bit more? In yeah, terms of so like what, what that looks like. A, a, a very, yeah. a very, a very simple, a very simple way of using this in a contemplative way is Facebook. So everyone when they log into Facebook or any system that gives you notifications of someone interacting with you, whether it be a like or a reshare. So one of the first things people notice, like, oh look, someone reshared that. But that in itself really just creates a Skinner box for the mind. It doesn't really mm -hmm. enable any level of contemplation. But to know on a broader scale how people are interacting with that data and what they're doing with it and what that data does to other systems. So take something like I post something on Facebook, someone likes it, but I know that before that, the temperature in the room was this, I was listening to this song and, the, and, the, and my dog was sleeping. It gives me a little bit more context into that moment as a total experience, not just for me and my data, but for the world that I'm connected to. So the quantified selflessness was really became and is for me right now a journey to unify my experience with both the organic and physical and the spiritual as it relates to the data that it can create now that we can measure most of it. Okay, interesting. We're, we're going to have to go into this well, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Was that? No, it's great. I figured if there's, if there's any show where I can go deep, it's this Yeah, one. It's, it's great. No, and I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I wanted to bring in another dimension to this too because I know uh, roughly around the same time you also started uh, getting into mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk about how that sort of connects to this and, and how you're looking at that. Yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's a lot more personal. Uh, I've told it to a few journalists, but they, they don't, they leave that part out. So what happened was as I started becoming more aware of my own existence, just from how much I was doing and literally just saving a file in Google, right? Or getting an email or picking up the phone or getting a text message or taking pictures, I became aware of how those systems looked and how they looked in comparison to other things. I created a Maslow's hierarchy of needs to say, well, you know, I'm taking a picture that's pretty, you know, self-grandizing it, but if I actually create something that could be used for the good, that's actually better. So I created map 10 systems, whether it be financial all the way down, and I mapped them the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When I did that, what happened was um, I became uh, really afraid because uh, I had no idea how much impact I had on my environment. It's one thing to be contemplative uh, and, and to be learned and practiced and, and, and have all the tools that many of the people I met at the conference have. It's another thing to stumble into it and be almost like, you know, 
uh, you know, forced, you know, like waterboarded with awareness. It's like, it's too much. Um, so for me, I didn't even know that mindfulness existed or even had a concept of it three years ago. But at that point, a year into this, I really was coming slightly unhinged with the amount of information I had access to about myself. It's one thing to Google yourself, another thing to Google your life. And it started to make me feel slightly detached from reality because I could see too much. So I went to someone and said, what's going on? Um, you know, I'm really, really afraid. And they said, you know, you're, you're becoming aware, but you're, you don't know what you're becoming aware of. And a lot of other things, I'm sure you guys know from teaching and people you've worked with. So that's when I started actually focusing on this and this. Mm -hmm. right? uh, and realizing that what I was seeing was a manifestation of that. And there was such, you know, it almost makes me very emotional. There was such a beautiful symbiosis between my head, my heart, and, and all the systems I could see starting to create each other that it became reinforcing. If I was kinder, gentler uh, to myself, literally, I could exponentially see it in my work and in my personal life. Wow. One, one question that comes up for me, Chris, is... That was um, hard. I'm sorry. Uh, thank <laughs> yeah, you for no, that, that. That's, that's great. The... Um, one one thing that comes up is typically in the the, the contemplative endeavor is there there can be this um, distinction between self and world, and uh, the really meditation is designed to just dissolve that distinction. And it, some of what you're describing sounds like it had a similar effect in terms of just being aware of something outside of you. But then the other thing that comes to mind is how that uh, kind of being so involved in your own data, um, is there a danger of um, just becoming self-absorbed? And, and how, how did that play out and how is that playing out with the way that you're collecting data and making meaning of it and um, just kind of seeing the ripples of your actions and, and the decisions that you make, how that's affecting everything else? Because um, that's something that's really unique. And I think it's, it's, cool that you're measuring that stuff and uh, seeing that actually objectively, because a, a lot of times we just see it subjectively. So I'm, I'm curious kind of how that. Yeah, I call it the hubristic out. butterfly effect. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, because uh, it is very easy for me to pathologize or, or, or fetishize my, my actions once, once you can see them. Like, oh, look at what a good person I am. Uh -huh. uh, people do this now with, with, you know, with any type of network where they can get a response from someone. Oh, look, I got attention. Um, so, you know, I just want to be very clear to your point. It is very dangerous. Um, I was just talking to someone yesterday about this. Someone, a trusted mentor, who guided me through this from a contemplative standpoint. And I said, you know, it is at the point where I would not recommend this to anyone. Uh, there are limits to how much, you know, maybe, you know, as, as a practicing Buddhist, there aren't limits, uh, uh, but you know, waterboarding awareness is not for the faint of heart. Um, as far as you know, becoming too self-absorbed. You know, I've been. You know, I did an interview with Wired magazine on YouTube, uh, a live one, and the comments were horrible, uh, like most comments are, right? Yeah. Uh, where I was self-absorbed, or I was a digital Hitler, and I wanted to, you know cleanse you know bad behavior from the earth and i was thought police and 
I get it. You know, I, I can get where people would see that. I can only tell you that from my experience, I might be unique in the way that I'm gathering and explaining what I'm seeing, uh, but I'm not unique in the experience in which we're sharing. We're all seeing it. Uh, I just happen to be a little bit more gifted at articulation and empathy with a little bit more data. Uh, right. I mean, it seems more granular. It's, it seems like, you know, all of this stuff is happening anyways. And if people are engaging in social media or Facebook, you know, and having these kind of uh, narcissistic self-absorbed <laughs> tendencies, it's happening. Um, it's just maybe they're not as aware of it. And but, that's, but that's what they are, because if you've ever unfriended someone uh -huh. and, and especially if it's someone who's never interacted with you. Uh -huh. You will find out instantly how aware they are of your how unimportant you were to never speak to you. Because <laughs> the minute they noticed they were unfriended and they hadn't spoken to you in a year, it becomes the most important conversation they've ever had. So we uh -huh. are aware of our, our, our exhaust to each other. What we're not comfortable with is our intimacy to each other. And until we can go past this, this, this graphic display of, of data hubrism and get to the respect we have for the intimacy for each other in our own, in our own selves, a, a gentle kindness, the gentle observation. Uh, you know, I, that's why I'm so passionate about the Buddhist community. You know, the, you're the only community I've seen in, in all my travels around the world in the past three years that has the slightest clue at helping people start to work through this because we're not going to have less technology in a year. <laughs> that's, for, that's for that's for damn sure we're not gonna have less technology yeah. that's that's a tweet right there <laughs> tweet it tweet it yeah, but then it gets recorded and it <laughs> to the dog's activity and you know it's, it's not good for anyone it's just, i think i think the dog was farting during that tweet <laughs> and i've <laughs> I won't even go into measuring that, but that does affect air. It does affect air quality. I yeah, it does. I, I mean, the sensor is sensitive. I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a Netatmo on Rocker's Rocker's butt, but if I could, I... oh man. Okay, this is this is great. Um, not not to switch gears. Uh, yeah, switch gears. <laughs> I mean, we can loop back to some of the things you said, but but another thing that we wanted to kind of explore is this idea, and I think you started kind of getting into it a bit, of digital dualism, mm. which is a, an idea that was put forth by uh, Nathan Jurgensen, Jurgensen, yeah. who uh, wrote about this, a, I think it was a couple years ago. I remember reading it in, in Los Angeles and really enjoying it. And he sort of, uh, maybe I'll let you characterize it, because you just talked to him recently, kind of what the, kind of the basic point that he's making is. We just emailed each other the other night. I've, you know, I've talked to him a bunch of times. I, he has a conference called Theorizing the Web. You know, it, take Buddhist geeks and remove all spirituality and make it academic. And that's that's that conference. And it's it's brilliant. I mean, I, they'll have another one in fourteen, and I can't wait to sign up and go. It was in New York last year. Nice. But you know, it was uh, you know, all these PhDs, you know, reading their thesis in seven minutes or less on a panel, and just like, you know, you was like, wow, I didn't realize people were behaving that way, and um. And, and, and the bots for trolling faster than people and a lot of other things. But digital dualism, um, you know, I'm not even going to try to explain it as articulately as Nathan Jurgensen does. Um, but it's kind of like the curse of knowledge. Once you know of digital dualism, you can't unsee it. So I, I encourage people to sign out to now or, or watch, skip this part of the video, because once you're aware of it, you see it everywhere. But it's, it's humanity's um, pathology of technology. And it's, it's the problem lies that when we make the use of technology um, 
less than admirable, we actually are creating a condition that not using technology makes you more human. Um, and you see this everywhere. There's a video going around currently that shows a bunch of young people using their phones and not really talking to each other. People joke about it in restaurants. Oh, let's all leave our phones and actually have a conversation. And the reality for me is once I became aware of this, I realized, wow, and I actually had the data to prove that digital dualism was damaging to the spirit. Um, I stopped doing it because uh, when you stand in front of a bunch of people, you share with them, using your phone kind of, you know, becomes addicted and you're not having genuine conversations and these aren't real relationships. You know, the people who can afford to put technology down and, and go to a digital detox or the people who can, uh, who have the bandwidth to have someone else deal with their systems, and those are very few. We would call that the 1% in economic terms. The rest of us are forced to use technology. So just to, to create an, an, an environment where we pathologize the use of technology and then have to leave the room and sneak using our phone while we're in the restroom is really no different than what we did with cigarettes, except cigarettes needed to go away. Technology might, maybe it changes, but that's contemplative technology and design, a bunch of other things. It's a whole yeah. other conversation. But right now, it's, it's you know, you can't, you can't go into 1963 and tell you know, into the Oval Office and say, everyone, you need to stop smoking. It's killing you. And, and you know, well, there's, there's a missile crisis going on in Cuba. You know, <laughs> you know I'm like, uh, well, sorry, but, you know, you're wrong and you're a terrible person for smoking. You know, no, I'm, I'm going to kill, you know, this nuclear weapon. You, know, you just cannot <laughs> drop a bomb like, no pun intended. You cannot drop that type of thought process into the lexicon of, of, of the, the environment. It's just it does nobody any good. And you see it everywhere. You know, someone sent me a picture today and said, look, there's a sign that said, we don't have Wi-Fi because we want you to talk to each other. You know, for some people, their entire existence, their entire adult life has been social. They don't know anything else. For some people, they have to feed their family. Their, their spouse is out of work. They're the only breadwinner. So answering email at 10 o'clock at night is something they have to do. To make them feel worse about themselves or the conditions in which they live in because of their relationship with technology is to rip apart the very core of the fabric we believe, and that is to be kind to each other and first do no harm. Yeah. What, one, one thing that comes up, Chris, it, um, as you're talking, it's really interesting, your perspective, because I haven't really heard this articulated in, in the way that you are. And it's, um, it's kind of one of those things where... Um, you know, cre creating this kind of artificial uh, schism and idealism around like just not using technology is really kind of the easy way out in terms of being a mindful, contemplative person and being in tune with your own experience and what what needs to happen in, in well, the moment I, and, and what effect is it having on you, you know, or... The, the, the other day I called it mindfulness as a weapon. Right. Because yeah. you, you, you introduced the, uh, the, the illusion that you could be more aware or more engaged in a conversation. But in reality, and this is another point that Nathan's brought up, um, in reality, when you're not using or engaged in technology, it actually has more power over you than when you actually are. Because a lot of people that I know, if you're eating with them, you can see them, you can see their hands sweating to check their phone, right? So the power of the technology holds much more of your conscious and your awareness when you're away from it. Mm -hmm. can't wait to go back just two years ago we went there to share what we saw with a few people now we're here and we can't wait to go back 
So, and that's and that's completely has happened because we've introduced this concept of healthy and unhealthy behaviors. And, you know, it's no different than my grandfather saying, you know, you're watching the boob tube. You're going to become stupid. You know, look at me. I'm, you know, I raised your family. Dad, you know, grandpa, you were born in a world where, you know, everyone actually had a chance. There was a middle class. You know, you know I don't even want to go into this, this, this honeypot of, of, of ridiculousness, uh, but it's, it's not healthy. I'm sorry. I, it's a, I'm, I'll rant on this one. I didn't, you know, sorry. No, 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 it's good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're exploring it. Um, there's so many things we could explore with this. One of the things that you said before we started this conversation or started the broadcast was that there's some kind of relationship where we're neither fetishizing nor pathologizing um, things that, 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 and, and, and in some ways I think the Buddhist reframe of that would be neither clinging nor, you know, pushing away, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a similar kind of thing where it's, um, yeah, it's so, a I mean, relationship that's different. That's, that kind of defies both both parts of that binary. Yeah, so clinging, grasping, striving, judging—you um, know—all those things exist whether you're a Buddhist or you're an atheist with an iPhone taking selfies. Um, uh, the ideology is to create an equanimity between yourself and, to me, not really the technology. I think that's where most people are, are, have this fallacy that we create an equanimity, we design better technology, we'll somehow fix the problem. And the problem is we actually need to design uh, a better relationship between ourselves and and the data. And and you know, people were like, I don't. You know, what are you talking about? Better relationship myself and my data. Well, there are certain systems that do a good job with giving you your data in a way that doesn't allow you to 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 fetishize it or pathologize it right uh now anyone can do any of those behaviors with anything but for a baseline of the population there are certain behaviors that software can do one of them i like to call is perspective as a service a lot of software now will introduce a concept of you over a year ago you were doing this whether it's a four square check-in or everpick or you know, a lot of systems are now reintroducing you to you the power you know reflection and contemplation at that level at least is not as damaging as in this is the moment and you need to reconstruct the moment around you and and have this documentary style vision where you don't see the monitors or you guys on screen you see things that could be posted well if you're going to live that way at least give people a way to or i call it a wormhole back to to where they were because in some small way there's a trigger that gets picked oh it's like when your mom would pull out the fan the family album and the, the paper be yellow, it'd be kind of sticky and you know, you'd want to hold the picture, but you couldn't. So you'd have to force to look under anything of that bad glazy plastic from Sears and you'd flip through it and you'd stare at the date and you're like, oh my gosh, that was 1973. You'd be so excited. You notice the corner was ripped and did mom rip it when she put it in her pocket? You know, there are wormholes that allow us to explore ourselves at a level that regardless of technology, we need to take advantage of. And I think perspection or introspection and, and, and perspective is one of those. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, one thing I've noticed, just to go back to your kind of point about the digital dualism and, and like that video you mentioned, you know, I've, I've noticed over time a kind of shift in relationship to things like, like my iPhone, for instance. Um, I've, I've noticed that it, there actually has been a movement toward, in the beginning, being like completely blown away and also completely absorbed in and, and often distracted by some of those tools and then a kind of gradual sort of just coming to become familiar with it and learning how to use it more skillfully um, so that you know when i'm present with someone say physically 
at dinner, hanging out, talking that like, I just know now how to navigate around the fact that I'm simultaneously there with them and simultaneously have the potential to be connected to uh, other people who aren't there. And that there's nothing wrong with being connected with other people uh, while being connected with this person. It's not that that itself isn't wrong, but but that the, there's the there's just a kind of learning of a kind of social intelligence or etiquette around how to how to manage those in a way that's not kind of like um, I think etiquette worked for for the telephone. <laughs> yeah, I think etiquette started failing with email. That's why I say and intelligence I th- maybe is a better word. I, I think the I think the the collapse of etiquette as technology exponentially grows is a sign that intelligence is probably more the way we go. But, you know, again, it was Buddhist geeks and, and, and some of my own work that taught me really all the intelligence in the world didn't bring me any awareness, didn't bring me any, any level of enlightenment. Uh, and, and the last thing I was going to do was, or last thing I try to do, so important for me, um, is to not look at people using technology and think about, like now if I see a smoker, in 2013, September almost. But see a smoker, and I, I'm an ex-smoker, you know, three years ago. It's the other thing, you know, I lost a bunch of weight and stopped smoking. And I did all this, you know, through the, the glorification of knowing yourself. Um, but, you know, I see the smoker, and I think, oh, gosh, you know, I want to go up and talk to them and almost count them like, you know, you would see like a bum on this. You know, and I see people, you know, have, look at people with that technology thing. Um, I don't know. I just, for me, it's a very sticky subject because even listening to you say when I'm at dinner, you know, and I'm with someone, or physically with someone, there's some dualism there, you know, you're well, and, and, <laughs> and this is where this is where I wanted to push back a little bit on this, because I've, I've spent a couple of years reflecting on the digital dualism thing. And, you know, one thing that I was thinking about um, is the like from a Buddhist sort of more Buddhist perspective, you know, du- dualism is also part of the Buddhist tradition, especially in the Zen in the Zen schools. They talk a lot about duality and um, you know, there's this notion in Zen that um, the conceptual mind is capable of dualizing, of, mm. of creating these sort of se- separate containers or separate, uh, the separating our experience when it's actually not fundamentally separate. Um, and they're talking about the subjective experience of yeah. it primarily. And kind of the recognition there is what I found really helpful is in order to see through a dualism or to transcend a dualism, you have to first become aware of the dual, the duality. You have to first see that it's happening in real time, yeah. feel the pain of it, you know, mm-hmm. either for yourself or how it affects other people and, and grapple with that for a while until finally something kind of like occurs, you know, or the, pro, or the duality just kind of stops being an issue or, you know, something shifts. And then, and then from there you have a different lived inner experience of that duality. It's no longer a problem. You can see the two ideas, you know, that used to be problems, yeah. but, but they're no longer problematic for you in the same way. So, so what I say, so what I'd say is like, you know, there are a lot of people at the cutting edge of, of, of these technologies and, uh, and of consciousness that are, I think uh, largely have like let go of a lot of dualities around them. Right. And I'd say you're probably one of those people. Well, this gotta, is, and, and, you know, I'm sorry, Vince, but you're also a very unique person in the population. I mean, yes, there's know, a very large true, contemplative, true. you know, uh, society. Well, this, is, this is my point. This is my point. So, so my point is, um, so, so there are people who, for whom the duality is not a problem or it doesn't really exist in the same way, like Nathan or like maybe, maybe us some of the time or 
a lot well, of the time. I, well, yeah, I don't think Nathan's aware of how dual, you know, so I, let's just go back there. If you watch Nathan, he really struggles with it himself. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fact that he needs to remind people of how dualistic we are shows that he's struggling with being in the paradox that he's observed. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so, 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 the point, so the point I would make is just that, you know, it's one thing to have the living experience of non-duality. Mm-hmm. It's another to see another person who's still living in the experience mm-hmm. of dualism. Um, and to also not pathologize people for, for suffering and for pathologizing yeah. their situation. Um, that there's a kind of compassion that can kind of like hold both simultaneously. Um, or that I think at least we're tr- in some sense trying to develop that kind of compassion because that kind of compassion, it, the reason it's important, not because of the compassion itself, but because of what we can do when, when we see, when we experience things that way, when we're, when we're not pathologizing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, it's a totally open question to me as to what's the best way to like, work with this stuff. And I find it, I find some of the dualism around digital stuff really frustrating as well. Um, but then I see a lot of, I see a lot of harm and, uh, in how people are using technology. And I see you know, that we're all grappling collectively, like groping to figure out how to, how to actually utilize these things in a way that serves some deeper purpose or meaning in our lives. As the data. To, yeah. Yeah. The da- I, I'm going to go back to it. It's the data. Right, and it, when the phone disappears, there'll still be data. Before there was a phone, there was data. Right, we call that data awareness. Right, so there's some levels of awareness. If you have enough data and you can see enough data points, you know you might be enlightened to see the interconnections between everything. Right, I'm pretty sure that the only difference between you know the people who started the cosmos and the people who did quantum physics were uh, a, a, a belief in in in, in some level of spirituality, because uh, I think you know. Uh, you can't look at one of those two sciences without being spiritual. And I won't say which one's which, but um, uh, they end up being the one and the same. Um, it's difficult, I think, to your point, but um, I don't see a way forward for me unless I, you know, and Nathan, you know, I think, you know, I, I wrote to him last night and I said, you know, I, I, you do incredible work and, you know, it, I bet it's lonely. Um but, you know, you have people who, you know, believe, believe in what you're doing. Um, again, I, I go back to the economic factors. I know people who are one, single parent or, or, or only one income, and they can't stop working at five. They can't stop. Now, I'm not saying, you know, they can't stop using Facebook, but some of them, that's how they might network out to a new event. I, you know, unless you want to go into a conversation on, you know, guaranteed uh, basic income, I think, you know, we need to recognize that we don't live in a society where we have a choice and it's actually going to get less choiceful. Yeah. This, uh, this conversation is, it, it reminds me of um, when I was in grade school and um, I would daydream all the time. You know, I would, I would be absorbed in, in that reality of, you know, ideas and images and, um, I would always get in trouble, you know, and be called back to the classroom and being present with uh, what was happening there. And I see the same kind of wrestling with with technology and in 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 our lives. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, where where what are we being present with? Because there's oh, so to, much to, information. And, to you your know. point, to your point, the problem is actually with the definition of awareness and present, whether you're a Buddhist or or, or a techno fetishizer. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, they're just as aware as we are. You were just as aware of daydreaming, right? Right. The problem is it's our, it's our, our point of view. You're not aware. Okay. Yeah. That means you're not paying attention to me. You're not paying it. Okay. So basically what you're saying is you have an outcome you're tied to, which is being acknowledged. Okay. That's not awareness. That's you. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, in, in, um, this, well, Vince, do you have a point? Yeah. I want you to lose it. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. Okay. You said you would yell. Come, Mike. No, no, no. This is good. This is good. Uh, you know, I was thinking with a, with awareness as we started exploring awareness. I was thinking, what, what is what is meditation then? Because obviously, awareness mm. is functioning with or without meditation. Um, now, I was thinking is sort of awareness. Meditation at first is like becoming aware that you're aware. It's sort of an awareness that you're aware, and then we train that. And then, but what's interesting is that where it heads after that seems to be like the advanced stages of meditation are about uh, losing the awareness that you're aware, losing, ditching that new split that you've had to create to kind of pull yourself out of your experience or disembed from your experience or whatever. And at some point, it's like actually becomes some a, a new. It becomes a problem to constantly be reflecting on your own experience all the time because it's a split. It's a new duality to use that that term so then there's a collapsing of that and there's just in zen they talk about just ordinary life you know just living um but and yet that recognition is very different from where you began even if there's something similar and it's this process in between that's very fascinating where we're like you know becoming aware of our data or becoming aware of our quality of attention or you know, and for me, going back to the conversation about the phone thing, like the reason that's important to me, you know, to to have a certain way of of uh, uh, interacting with my device with other people is simply because I want to have a value of being present with whatever is right in front of me, and that needs my attention. Okay, and, and I think ultimately, then we end up with the question: Is there some greater uh, value placed on right. an, or, an organic? Uh, meeting than a uh, one that's facilitated by a technology. And for me, uh, and I think why digital doodles might ring so radically with me versus Nathan uh, yeah. is because I actually can see that there's, there's nothing less real about yeah. my relationships at a data level yeah. than the ones I have. Now, the ones I have in real life, obviously they create memories and, and I can, I can, you know, oh God, look how important I sounded and look how amazing I was. And I wore this great outfit and had this great meal and look, I paid for lunch and, you know, and I'm doing lots of memory trips with uh, Vincent right now, by the way. Um, <laughs> but, it, but, but it's, uh, Did you pay for lunch? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but it's, you know, but again, you know, I don't have the maturity to treat real space a majority of the time with the proper respect that it deserves. I'm just now becoming aware and online with this drama. Right. So, you know, I, you know, I wish the world, you know, there's this crazy poster people always bear. If we just taught every eight year old to meditate, we'd wipe out wars in two generations. You know, I think we'd actually have some other problems, though. Oh, yeah. I, th I think there are problems bigger than war. Isolation, anger, loneliness, depression, uh, depression, you know, uh, you know. Again, it, it all comes back to duality. You know, some days I wish I just was a recluse in a cave, but, you know, I know at that point I'd be disturbing the dirt in the cave, which would be disturbing an ecosystem that actually used to live in the cave, which, you know, again, it gets into this pornographic butterfly effect of myself. And it's, there's no escape. There's no escape. <laughs> um, no. Yeah. You really go back and watch The Matrix and digital dualism, 
Uh, oh, that's the, the data. Uh, everything in that movie was about, you know, really where we're heading, you know, right now, right down to Tank being able to see images in the data. Uh, I can tell you right now, you just look at my Google Calendar, you know, I, because it's color coded to like the parts of my life, I see images. I can see Vince in some of my weeks, even though I haven't talked to Vince. Um, uh, yeah. What, um, Chris, I know we're, we're, you know, we got to be mindful of the time, but uh, there's one thing that I really wanted to ask you about um, because you have such a unique perspective on all of this data and you're one of the, you know, few people that are uh, gathering so much information about yourself, your environment, and uh, your, your social networks and the, the inner relationships. And um, I just wanted to ask you, like, where, where do you see this stuff going? Good. Um, you Good know, question. there's, there's, uh, you know, I have something right here that uh, is a, a activity tracker, basically a glorified pedometer um, to let me know how my sleep was, uh, how active I was throughout the day. You know, there's all, uh, you know, this is hot, uh, you know, wearable technology is, is on the horizon and getting more and more popular. Uh, you know, Moto X uh, is coming out with, you know, touchless control over your phone and just talking to it. So where, where do you see all of this stuff going? And, um, you know, what I'm particularly curious about as uh, someone who's in the, 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 the realm of designing technologies, uh, what, what should we be mindful of in terms of what's coming out? And, um, you know, what kind of advice would you give to people who are designing technologies in terms of what, what to kind of think about and where things might be headed? And you have five minutes, go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think, um, you know, low friction data collection uh, probably has to be very important. People don't want to check in. People just want it to, to, to monitor. Uh, the Moves app is a perfect example of something that gives you an amazing amount of data that's tied to multiple geo layers. Uh, so just dwelling in a location will actually give you information. You don't have to check in or do anything. Um, you know, I think perspective as a service is, is an experience that's really important. Quiet notifications are going to become so very important in the next 12 months. What anything, are quiet notifications? Yeah. Uh, anything that's haptic. Um, like or, vibration? Or, yeah, vibration or lights. So like in the morning, depending on the weather, my lights are a different color. Um, I, sometimes if I, you know, if, if the weather's going to change, I have a different playlist that plays, right? So you can be notified without being notified. Notifications force you in an awareness that can panic people. Uh, you know, email apnea is a perfect example of this. Um, so I think, you know, as we move into the next 12 or 24 months, quiet notifications are going to be just really, really important to people. Um, visualization, right now it's all around health. Wearable uh, tech is all around health. And, you know, that's really great. You know, you take something like Lose It, which is an a, a application. You tie it to your Fitbit and you tie it to your scale and you tie it to your tennis shoes and your heart rate monitor. You've got, you know, three systems, two applications and one service, right, all working together. So you're seeing this collapse into one unified information source from all of these different things that you can, they're all working together. Health is first, which Let's be honest, we're a species that wants to survive. So maybe that'll be the first systems we do this with, which, well, we have, we are. Um, but again, I think, you know, you take the quiet notifications, the, 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 the visualization that people need, if they do want that, the very passive collection of data or low friction data collection, you really then need to wrap it around 
is there something more than your health contributing to this? And one of the most powerful lessons I learned in my own 70 pound weight loss journey was I could do all the exercise and, and eating I want, but if I watched certain television, I was doomed, right? Mm. And I don't have any health mm. tracker telling me you watched four episodes of Project Runway last night, which every time makes me eat. I don't know what it is. There's like unhealthy <laughs> consumption of media that does something to some part of your brain. What, you know, neurons that wire together, fire together straight from the Buddhist Geeks conference, right? You can have Heidi Klum wire you into a Twinkie well, like in about three episodes. <laughs> and I just think that's the type of thing that we're going to see in the future where we're going to go, you know, not only do you have a rating for like children, don't watch this, you know, mature language around us, but you will eat bad. You will be abusive to your spouse and you might kick the dog. You know, I just think it's, it's there. We just just not aware of that's interesting you, you like, can like you can hit, 20 you can, yeah yeah no well we might have to have a part two chris uh, <laughs> we have so, to do this again um, you know it, what you're saying was really interesting to me because it sounds like you know all these systems and services and applications you know your four categories they exist there, there's tons of stuff coming out there but but what sounds like it's on the horizon is kind of like also the linking together of them in an intelligent way because you're doing that yourself. There's a, you know, billion, there's a billion dollar business right there. Right. And I've had a bunch of people, whether it be VCs or I wouldn't even name name drop. It would just be embarrassing that said, can you help us? And it's just like, you know, I'm not here to help, you know, awaken the world to their silliness. Uh, I'm here to get myself better and not hurt anyone. Okay, yeah. cool. Are those cool. separate? Are those separate concerns? I was curious. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just you know, it's just that awareness. You know, as you start to become aware, you become very conscious of not wanting to, you know, uh, do first do no harm. You know, and I think, you know, you just have to say, you know, use helpful words and 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 have helpful actions. And and for me, for me in my journey, I wish I would have found you guys ten years ago. Uh, that came by an awareness of how those things interrelated to each other. Mm. Very cool, Mike. Good. Did you wanna? Well, just one, just one that thing up. that I just read this morning uh, was about this uh, this Intel camera that was going to be able to sense uh, emotional responses, um, just just based on cameras, and it's speaking directly to what what you're saying about this kind of you know more more information just being reflected back. Yeah, I mean, the, the new digital dualism isn't whether you're with technology or whether you're not. It's whether you've hacked your systems so that you can. Uh, create a smoke screen for the sensors that are picking you up. The new lying is changing or a meditative state that changes your heart rate to get you out of something. Uh, it, it, we're, we're entering a, a very different human technological contemplation state in the next three years where you're going to have people who appear to be superhuman because of their ability to be stealth under the digital drones that monitor our lives under the guys that are helping us get work done. That's interesting. Yeah, that, that's something yeah. I saw you you're writing about recently or tweeting about. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, some could, days it just flies out of my fingers. Maybe, maybe you could look back in the uh, in the logs and tell me when. But um, you know, you're talking about um, a lot of these technologies are going to be used to like help you know for companies to like kind of make sure their employees are doing their job. I mean, there 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 are different ways that these technologies can be implemented, and they have different implications for the people involved. Yeah, I can't remember. It's either Odesk or one of them now. One of the options when you ask for a task person is pay, pay them for the job or pay them hourly and then you get sent screenshots of their screen every hour they're working on it wow um 
you know, so the, the, the their surveillance and their surveillance, you know, so you can be surveilled or you can opt in to be the surveiller of your own activity. That's uh, it's a tech enable or a tech dependent standpoint. Uh, Alex Bard calls this the Netocracy or the Consumer Act. That sounds similar to Rushkoff's program or be programmed yep. kind yep. of analogy too. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Well, and the same with that with that camera that can detect your emotions. I mean, they're talking about it as a way to uh, see if you're responsive to certain commercials. Um, and that same technology could be used to you know reflect back whether you get into a stressful state. Um, and, and, and most of that's just know. doing that with 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 blood flow on your face because you can get yeah. really I mean, that's not like an expression like you can look happy. But again, you know, Tammy Faye Baker would avoid all of those systems. <laughs> right. So, you know, with enough makeup, I mean, we're, what you're going to see in three years is the rise of heavy makeup. You're not going to see, you know, the rise of anything really technical. You're just going to see Tammy Faye Baker in every corner because she don't want to be droned. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.